Welcome to the Congress of Neurological Surgeon podcast. We have Dr. William Cartwell here today to discuss the article, A Modified Lateral Orbitotomy Approach to the Superorbital Fissure. Our discussants are Dr. Zakaria and Dr. Dukrabarty. Uh, I would uh, ask Dr. William Cartwell to start us off with an introduction and a little summary of his work. Well, thank you very much. It's an honor to be here uh, and talk about our um, our technique. Um, let me tell you that the, the genesis for this technique was um, sort of looking at the 100-year evolution of the frontotemporal approach. We thought that uh, we could evolve the approach a little more into a more minimally invasive approach, and I realize that this has been done by many people using a mini-terrional approach and a lateral superorbital approach, but we felt that if we wanted to concentrate on the region of the middle fossa and the cavernous sinus and the superior orbital fissure, as well as the medial temporal lobe, we thought that we could probably do this in a less invasive fashion. Uh, instead of coming and doing a formal craniotomy, we could come along the lateral orbital wall of the orbit and uh, achieve a window into the middle fossa and the posterior uh, orbit and the cavernous sinus to expose uh, pathology, that more limited pathology in this area that wouldn't require wide exposure. Now, the inherent advantages of doing this is that you're coming down the pterion in a more acute angle along the orbit, and because of that, you're not retracting the temporal lobe at all to get to the superior orbital fissure or the cavernous sinus. It puts you more along the axis of the orbit and you're coming in underneath the temporalis muscle. So you don't disconnect the temporalis muscle at all. And so you avoid all the problems with trying to take down the temporalis muscle and then getting atrophy in the temporalis muscle and using cranioplasty techniques to avoid that. So in essentially what the the approach is, is that you take off a little window, about a 15 millimeter window of the lateral orbital rim. And this is 15 millimeters from where the zygoma meets the lateral orbital rim superiorly. And you remove that like a little bone flap. And this is done through a, a, a lateral canthal incision, which forks up into the into the eyelid to give you a little bit more working room. And so you remove the lateral orbital wall, and then you march down the, um, the, you remove the rim, and then you march down the lateral orbital wall. And, and what you do is you thin the lateral orbital wall as you go down, but leave the um, internal cortical margin of the orbital wall intact. So this avoids then any diplopia that you uh, would give the patient if you entered the orbit specifically. And then you have to drill through the sphenoid wing in an acute angle, and it's very helpful to use image guidance when you do this. And you make about a two centimeter by two centimeter window into the temporal fossa, and you come along and you come if you drill through along the lateral orbital wall using a two centimeter opening, you come onto the dura of the middle fossa, and then you come in extradurally 
and continue along to the region of the superior oral fissure. So you're originally starting extracranial, then you're drilling through the sphenoid wing, and then you end up in the middle fossa on the dura of the very anterior medial aspect of the temporal lobe. And then you retract the dura and peel the dura off the region of the superior oral fissure. And if you need to, you can peel it right off into the cavernous sinus all the way back to Meckel's cave. And then you can address the pathology. And what we did with this case that's in this uh, video case report and the anatomy review is that we removed a tumor of the superior oral fissure that was putting pressure on the optic nerve and causing visual loss. It was a little mangioma. And it gives you a beautiful little window into this area that's uh, minimally invasive. And if you keep the incision limited along the lateral canthus, then it heals beautifully and there's no temporalis wasting. And uh, we send the patients home uh, the day after surgery. The only part that I need to emphasize is that you need to reinsert the lateral orbital rim that you remove as a, as a bone flap very precisely um, because it's cosmetically important. And so when we remove that lateral orbital rim bone, we use either a C1 bit on the Midas, so we take away less bone, or we use an oscillating saw, a very thin oscillating saw, so that it fits back in beautifully. Uh, and you can replace it in perfect anatomical position. So it's really, this approach is really meant uh, to address lesions in the, in the orbit, the superior orbital fissure, and the cavernous sinus. And what I use it for mostly is lesions in the cavernous sinus where we'll peel up the lateral wall of the cavernous sinus, we'll remove a specific lesion if it's there, we can decompress the optic nerve and do a optic canal drilling, and remove the anterior clinoid process as well. So that's the spectrum of which you're able to achieve. More recently, we've used this approach to address lesions in the, in the middle fossa interdurally as well. So we've opened up the dura of the medial temporal fossa, and you can address lesions in the uncus, uh, and you can even do a, a hippocampectomy and an amygdala hippocampectomy through this approach. So we're still learning what the entire limits of the approach are, but it's a beautiful little minimally invasive way to get into the superior oral fissure and the cavernous sinus, and that was the genesis of the uh, approach initially. So I'm happy to answer any questions. Well, thank you much for this um, very nice description and overview. Dr. Zakaria, could I ask you please to start off the discussion? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I would just just say, you know, this is just a really kind of elegant um, solution to, to some of these issues that Dr. Caldwell had addressed. Um, and, and I think it never really ceases to amaze me, you know, how many approaches have been designed to the skull base, and, and yet there's there's continues to be room for further advancement and development. And so I think Dr. Colwell addressed a lot of this, but, you know, my first question has always been, you know, what really prompts you after so many years of, of approaching lesions of the cavernous sinus and the superior orbital fissure to say, you know what, I, the way we're doing it could be done better, or we could find some different technique to doing it. 
Um, and, you know, I think you just some of that, but, but you're particularly interested in, in what, you know, kind of sparks you to then go ahead and, and, and uh, kind of start developing an approach like that. Yeah, so, you know, who really got me thinking about this was Professor Yazagil had, even though the frontotemporal approach um, was really popularized by, um, you know, back in the early 1900s with Dandy, um, it was Yazagil who really refined it for the approach to anterior circulation aneurysms and aneurysms of the, of the basal apex. And he had mentioned to me over the years that, you know, we we really need to improve the frontal temporal approach. And, and I thought about that, and, and this idea was in, in conjunction with Tamara Alte, who is who's now a uh, professor and chairman of neurosurgery in Istanbul. And um, we had taken these notions and gone to the skull base lab and thought about working down the lateral wall of the orbit. And it's interesting to me that as neurosurgeons, Historically, we've been we've considered the orbit as sort of a no man's land, and I really want to emphasize to the younger neurosurgeons that it's an important area to master, and we shouldn't be intimidated by operating in the orbit because a lot of the disease that we address enters the orbit, like meningioma, and a lot of the techniques that we use routinely in neurosurgery can be easily addressed or applied to disease entering the orbit. And so with our with our meningioma work, we've become very aggressive at removing the periorbita and entering the orbit and removing tumor in the orbit. It's very forgiving. You just need to understand the anatomy, go to the skull base lab and rehearse these approaches and understand the relationships of the nerves at the superior orbital fissure and how the nerves course through the orbit. The, peri- the orbital fat is your friend. It's a great buffer against the optic nerve and the um, ophthalmic artery and, uh, and the globe. And you should spend the time, learn the anatomy, and don't be afraid to work with your ophthalmology colleagues and learn what you can achieve. Uh, because I think they look at the the orbital wall as a barrier to them going into the cranial space, and we look at the orbital wall as a barrier going into the orbit, and we should be more facile about crossing that. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I 100% agree, and I've, I've heard you kind of mention that before about about you know neurosurgeons, you know, becoming orbital surgeons as well, and and I think in in, in my training, you know, when, when you see good orbital surgeons work and, and, and kind of how aggressive they are, you know, within the orbit, it kind of, kind of gives you that sense that, that you could actually do a lot more than you think we could do. Um, and I think you, kind of what you said leads into kind of my, my next question, which, which you've answered a lot of, I think was just, you know, when you're developing this approach, you know, how critical is it um, to practice that, these approaches and to, to go into the Scobis laboratory and really, you know, push the limits. What 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 can you see? What can't you see? And what do you think this will be ideal for before you um, kind of jump into doing a, a novel approach? You know, in a, in a real person, um, in, in a real clinical setting. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the skull based laboratory is a great um, incubator for a lot of these ideas and approaches, and you can rehearse them. And um, the other beauty of operating on the skull base is that it doesn't shift. And so 
when you start to apply your ideas from the skull-based lab to the in to clinical cases, you know, you've got image guidance systems and I encourage people when they do this type of approach to start with is to use image guidance. So it gives you the comfort, you know what direction you're going in because it's a it's a little bit disorienting the first time you do this because you're coming through the terion through a more anterior angle. And um, it's very helpful since you're drilling through the bone of the sphenoid to make sure that you're on track and you're aiming for the right location, whether it be the superior fissure or the middle fossa floor. And so I think we've got a lot of tools at our disposal now that make it much easier. And the skull base is a beautiful area to apply image guidance to help you with these approaches. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Dr. Well, Caldwell, yes, I was please, Dr. Dr. Absolutely. I was. Uh, you do note that, uh, and you mentioned it again, that neuronavigation is uh, could be a vital part in sparing the lateral orbital wall during uh, the paper. Now, would you suggest that initial surgeons would not proceed with the surgery if they don't have access to neuronavigation? And how vital would you say that neuronavigation is to performing this procedure successfully? Yeah, I think it's important. It's especially important um, if you, you're trying it for the first time. Uh, you should go to the lab and practice it. But one of the issues is you're drilling through the sphenoid wing and entering the middle fossa, and you want the correct trajectory. So you're starting at the lateral canthus and you've removed the rim and then you're going to go back. Now one of the beauties is if you if you drill the bone of the lateral wall and where it merges with the sphenoid bone, um, it you'll find that you'll drill through the the uh, cancellous part of the bone quite easily and you can find the medial orbital cancellous or the uh, the cortical bone quite easily. So if you careful and you use a diamond drill you'll drew through the cancellous bone, you'll find the cortical wall, and it's quite easy to, to preserve. And if you look at the x-ray in that paper I just uh, looked at, you, you can see how we thinned out that bone to just leave the cortical margin. And uh, it's quite easy to do. Uh, and if you look on the post-op scan there, you'll see it. And image guidance helps you with that, but it's mostly just feel and looking at the bone as you're drilling it. And then the size of the window when you drill through the this phenoid wing is dependent on the pathology you're trying to address. So you can make a bigger window into the middle fossa if you wish. You just have to tailor it to the what you're trying to what we did in this case, we were just going to the superable fissure, so we didn't need to to remove too much of the lateral sphenoid bone in that area. So image guidance is important. I think it's critical when you're first starting. And then the other thing that I look for is when you're coming down into the middle fossa, look superiorly and you'll see the the junction on the dura. So when you're when you take down the sphenoid ridge through a standard frontal temporal approach, you realize that there's a ridge in the dura between the frontal and the temporal lobe. You'll see that ridge when you're drilling through the middle fossa and you can go superiorly. And that's how you can find the clinoid easily, is you just find the frontal the frontotemporal dural junction and follow that down and you can get to the um, the clinoid quite easily and recognize the clinoid. 
but the depth of it is a little bit deceiving when you're first starting and you want to use image guidance. Mm -hmm. And uh, thank you for that. Uh, that's very helpful. I, I did try to do this procedure at a recent skull-based course I went to, and uh, it is uh, deceptively difficult when, when you don't have the uh, help of neural navigation, I feel like, or or um, you'd need a much better mastery of neuroanatomy to really go in there and, based on the anatomy, um, find a way. Uh, I was going to move on to another point. Um, what other critical points would you uh, like to pass on to someone that just wants to start trying and using this approach on their patients? You had mentioned um, the importance of neuronavigation and looking superiorly. Are there any other points you would like to... Well, it, yeah, I mean, try to stay out of the orbit if you can, um, because if you drill, say, you know, you're, and try to use a, a diamond drill, or like I usually use a coarse diamond in most of my bone work in, in critical areas. The reason is it allows you to recognize, you know, the, the cortical part of the bone and try to stay out of the periorbit and the orbit. If you get into the orbit early on, then you're usually fighting periorbital fat that's in your field. And then, you know, we used to do this by taking off all the bone along the lateral wall of the orbit. And if you have a, a rent in the periorbita, then you're you're having to retract back the periorbital fat because it's in your field. So that's, that's a key point. And that's the, the point we emphasized in this paper is try to leave that cortical margin of bone intact. And then remember, you can't hurt anything really, if you go in fearly. I mean, it's a safe zone. So err on aiming for the middle fossa floor and then working your way up. Um, you don't want to enter or come across the, the carotid or or be into the clinoid and not recognize it. Um, and you want to understand exactly where you are with respect to the optic nerve and the superior fissure so you don't damage any of the nerves. But it's usually, you know, if you've done a lot of extradural middle fossa work through traditional Dolenk or Akuba approach where you peel up the lateral wall, the dura, over the cavernous sinus, this is quite simple. And it's the same anatomy. You're just looking at it from a little more anteriorly. And you'll recognize all the same structures, V2, you know, the superior fissure, V3, and you can follow the middle fossa floor all the way back to Meckel's cave without any problem at all. Dr. Calvo, it's just, just questioning that, that specific comment, because I think that's a great point. I mean, you, you mentioned people who already have kind of a great understanding of middle fossa approaches from, an, from a larger open approach where maybe you have more uh, anatomy to reference. Um, and that it almost seems kind of in this day and age where maybe people are doing less and less of those in, in, in training that to then make a jump to a more minimally invasive version of that might, might be difficult. Um, and just you know, any thoughts on that? Would you recommend doing several open approaches to the middle cranial fossa if you haven't done a lot prior to, to advancing to something like this? Would you consider this, you know, a more advanced approach? Yeah, I would, I, I Brad, I would consider this a more advanced approach. And, I think if you're facile with doing a standard uh, Dolink uh, or a Kuba approach through a frontotemporal craniotomy, it's very helpful. And maybe what you could do is, um, if you have access to a skull-based lab, then do a comparative approach uh, 
using you know a frontal temporal approach on one side and a and a, a lateral orbitotomy approach on the other. Um, I this this is a more advanced skull based approach. There's no question about that because you're using a very small window and and you you don't have a, a overall perspective view um, as if coming through a big frontal temporal flap. Great. Uh, I want to say thank you to our uh, discussants here. Uh, it was wonderful to hear you guys discuss this approach. Thank you for the contribution and being willing uh, to be part of our podcast. Uh, I want a, a special thank you to our senior author, uh, Dr. Codwell, and to our discussants, Dr. Zakaria and Dr. Dakobadi. Uh, this concludes the Congress of Neurological Surgeons podcast. Thank you very much. Ah, oh, that Thank was you. really great. It was.